All right. Hey, we've had fun so far, huh? Yeah, we're all ready for a later than usual Chi Alpha because a bunch of our friends got dunked and that was awesome. Great job, everyone. You don't have to bathe tonight either because basically, yeah, nothing better than cricket water. Amen. Amen. Hey, if you have your Bibles with you, open up to 1 John chapter 4. Or if you stole your Gideon Bible from your hotel, it's page 1041. That was a rough estimation. It never does. I will tell that joke every week. One day I'm going to have an actual stolen Gideon Bible and you're going to be like really shocked. What would you do? You'd be like, pastor stole? But it's a Bible. So does it count? Anyway. All right. So first John. Um, tonight we're going to be talking about the really simple topic of the love of God. Right? Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, selfless love of God. Right? And it just, uh, we're going to try and sum this up as best we can, but this is about like trying to describe like, you know, thermonuclear physics to a penguin. You know, how do we kind of sum this up? And uh, so we're going to do our best, and we're just going to go on an adventure together. Does that sound fun to anybody else? Yeah? Excellent. Okay. So in First John chapter 4, we're going to start in verse 7. And it starts out with John writing to the church in Ephesus. And he says, Dear friends... Let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love God does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Right? Let's bow our heads and pray. Heavenly Father, we're, we're really going to need some help to try and wrap our minds around how much you love us. So, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would um, just push out any distractions that we have floating around in our minds, Lord. Will you just come and be our king and our friend? Lord, speak to us individually in our hearts and our minds the truths that we need to hear. We love you and we trust you. Amen. All right, so I want to talk for a minute uh, about the history of the idea of love. Is that okay? So those of you that don't know, I majored in history, and that's why you're always going to hear a little bit of history in every sermon. I have to justify that $25,000 worth of debt somehow, okay? Amen. Um, so basically, our modern idea of love started in this movement called uh, Romanticism, and it was very much a European thing, and it was born out of this time of like unparalleled peace in Europe, right? For most of history, about every 15 years or so, Europe freaks out and they'd stab each other, but there was this one point where they said, hey, what if we didn't stab each other, right? And it led to like booming economic prosperity and like flowering culture of music and art, right? Also, in this time, uh, coffee and tea was introduced to Europe, which if you don't know, caffeine is a stimulant, right? And before that, all they had to drink was like dirty pond water and beer, which are either malaria or a depressant, right? 
So once they discover coffee, just like you have discovered coffee now that you're in college, you're like, wow, everything's amazing. And that's reflected. Like you can see the thought change. It was like some dude showed up and he's like, hey, what if we boil these dry leaves? And then everybody's like, hey, look, the sun is shining. We don't have to kill each other. It's like one-on-one. I, I swear, coffee saved lives. Amen. All right, there it, there it is in the history, right? So this was kind of like, this idea of romanticism was like this time of optimism, like not everyone is dying all the time, you know, like things are looking up, right? And so instead of thinking about, man, where's my next meal going to come? I hope the Black Plague doesn't wipe out my village. They got to think about things like love, right? And around this time, they, they started like thinking about love and valuing love really highly. And one of the things that they thought was taken from this passage in Scripture And they said, if God is love, then love is God. Right? Sounds like solid logic, but not quite. Right? If you were to say, Scroggins is sarcastic, could you then turn it around and say, sarcasm is Scroggins? I don't think so. You're cutting, come on, just help me out here. All right? Nestor, how dare you? I still blame you. Anyway. But... They said, you know, if if God is love, then love is God. And so then you'll see it in the writing, in in the fairy tales, in the stories, in the music, like in the architecture, right? There's this period, you can look it up on your own. I thought about putting a picture in here, but I would have nerded out too much. But just look up this, this thing called Rococo White Church. And it looks like, it looks like it was decorated by an eight-year-old little girl. And it's like this cathedral and it's incredible it's got rainbows and sparkles everywhere and I'm not kidding because it's like the epitome of romanticism like look everything's awesome right yeah no nobody's with me that's okay and so this high value of love like I think if you were to uh try and find something that maybe is a little bit more relevant to your minds which I probably should have started with think of the character Anna from the movie Frozen right Yeah, thanks. Thanks, guys. See, that worked. That worked. I'm good at my job. Um, Remember at the beginning, right? All she wants to do is be in love. She's in love with the idea of love, right? And she's just like, I can't wait to meet my prince. And that's the whole story, you know, kicks off, right? And all of the fairy tales that come out of this period of romanticism are about the same. It's stories about falling in love, stories about a prince that comes from a faraway land and and declares and demonstrates his undying love for this damsel in distress and he passionately rescues her from danger and then they ride off into the sunset happily ever after, right? And the idea of love is, is like the number one thing in their minds, right? And this idea has persisted with us. This is how we think of love, right? It's this very romantic and flowery thing. We still think about love in these terms. And, and to, uh, to illustrate this, all we have to do is like think of some of the songs that you've listened to in the last, I don't know, day. How many of them are about love, right? We have things like uh, one of my favorite bands, The Darkness, and their band, in uh, their song, I Believe in a Thing Called Love. Right? Just listen to the rhythm of my heart. If you know that song, be blessed. Right? It's amazing, right? And and all these songs are about love, like first love, true love, the loss of love. We have Meatloaf singing about, like, he would do anything for love, but he wouldn't do that. Right? 
Y'all know that song, right? Or my favorite, my favorite is, is the, uh, the song that was released in 1993 by a man named Hathaway, who was a Trinidadian and German immigrant to uh, the city of Köln, right? And he wrote this song called, What is Love? Parentheses, Baby, Don't Hurt Me. <laughs> right? And this song, I think, is the most pertinent to our discussion today. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. We all know the song, right? Did you know it was released in 1993? Can you believe that? Thank you. Yeah, that's great. I don't remember that song being released. I was not in sixth grade. Right? And so just like romanticism was a reflection of the age, it came from the song, What is Love, parentheses, Baby Don't Hurt Me, I'm going to say it like that every time, is also a reflection of the age that it came from, our modern way of thinking. It's interesting to me that the songwriter, when asking the question, what is love, his reply is, baby, don't hurt me. So what is love? Love is not being hurt. Love is not being hurt. So it would seem that somewhere in the zeitgeist of our culture, that we think of love as the absence of negative emotions. We tend to think of love in these terms. It's, it's an absence of negative emotion. So in our minds, love is something that only generates positive feelings for us. So we have relationships that make us happy, and they last only as long as they make us happy. We have friendships that last only as long as someone doesn't hurt your feelings. And is then, in a relationship we're not happy, we, we conclude then that we're not in love anymore because baby, don't hurt me. Our feelings get hurt in friendship, and then we're not friends anymore, and on and on and on. And these relationships that that we think and know deep down inside should be basic, right? They're fundamental to like this human experience. Deep down inside, we, we find them to be broken and complicated and hard to navigate because our definition of love is wrong. Because we define love in terms of emotion and feeling. When we apply the thought that God is love to this mindset, it means that negative feelings cannot and should not be felt from God or from his people. But I hate to break it to you. Sometimes you'll do something and you should feel bad. There are actions that you can do that you should be ashamed of. And that's the God-honest truth. But love is not a feeling. But because we think in these terms, the minute that we hear someone in a church say something we don't agree with, or the minute that someone challenges us on a personal level in our small groups, or maybe someone stupid says something really stupid from a mic, we just deuce out. We're like, later. They said something that wasn't loving. 
It didn't generate a positive feeling in my mind or in my heart. Y'all tracking? They said something or they did something that maybe, maybe on a noble level may have, may have made someone else feel bad. So I'm going to distance myself from them because they are not loving. That statement would not have generated positive feelings for someone. Another way that we frame this, and you see this all over social media, hate speech. Right? Now, don't get me wrong. There's legitimate hate speech out there. Right? I know I don't look it, but my mom's side of the family is Mexican. I know hate speech exists. Right? My stepfather's Jewish. I know hate speech exists. So don't get your wires crossed here. But typically what happens is we label anything that we perceive as unloving. We label things that don't generate within us positive emotions as hateful. Because we think that hate is the opposite of love. But let me tell you, hate is not the opposite of love. I'm sure if you met the average person on the street, or maybe even some of you in here, if I were to just walk up to you and ask you, hey, what's the opposite of love? You'd be like, hate. Love and hate, right? They're like a yin and a yang. But this isn't true. This isn't true. Did you know that God hates things? In Proverbs chapter 6, this is just one example. I picked this one out because it's the most direct. But it says, In verse 16, there are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him, haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. The Lord hates those things. And when you read through that list, which one of those should he not hate? He should hate those things, shouldn't he? I mean, like, in common parlance, if we were to say somebody acted like this, we would call them a D-bag, right? What a jerk. Just pot stirring and lying and stuff. God hates this stuff. He hates sin. But how can we say that God is love, but then also say that God hates something? It's because in order to hate something, you have to care about it. In order to hate something, you have to care about it. Think of it like this. The people in your life that make you the most angry or the most mad you've ever been are usually the people that are closest to you. You don't believe me. Just post who you voted for on Facebook and wait for your great uncle to reply. Am I right? Thanksgiving's going to be real weird. Or maybe... Maybe the person that you hate most or maybe the person you get angriest at the most in this world is the person that looks back at you in the mirror every morning. Have you ever looked at yourself and just hated yourself? Have you ever looked at yourself and just been mad? Why did I do that? It's because you know you're, you're better than that. It's because you actually care about yourself. So I'm here to tell you that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is apathy. 
The opposite of love is not caring. God is capable of hate because he cares so deeply about his creation. You and your neighbor and the whole earth. But God is incapable of not caring. It is impossible for God to not feel deeply for you and the people around you. It is not possible for God to be apathetic because apathy is the opposite of love. Neither is love positive feelings. It's not just avoidance of negative feelings, but love isn't positive feelings either. Love is bigger than mere attraction or affection, right? And we know this because we've all watched Frozen, right? The whole character arc of Princess Anna is showing us that this concept of love is way bigger than liking someone and wanting to get married, right? Love, biblical love, that's the kind of love that God loves you with and God loves me with, is bigger than just emotions that are here one moment and gone the next. Isn't that a relief? And we know that real love like this exists because some of you are still speaking to friends that you got in an argument with where you had negative feelings for a moment, yet you still cared, right? Some of you are still talking to your siblings, even though they didn't let you watch what you wanted to watch on Netflix when you were 14 years old, you know? All of the important relationships in our life, the ones that have stuck around, are evidence that real, lo real love is something that does exist. And it's bigger than just how we feel in a moment. And it's more important than positive feelings we are given or negative feelings that we are given. Y'all tracking with me? So then, Scroggins, what is biblical love? What is this love that God loves us with? Well, the Bible uses several words in the New Testament and the Old Testament for love. Old Testament words, they vary greatly, but most of them are relating to affection or liking someone or something. Does that make sense? And the New Testament words for love have meanings like um, love of obligation, which sounds really cold, but that's like parental love, you know? Uh, the love of affection, like I like how you make me feel, or love of attraction. But the two most common ideas the Bible attaches to the way God loves us is one, a steadfast loving kindness, and two, a love of prizing. In the Old Testament, the most common type of love, the most common word uh, or concept of love associated with God comes from, a he from the Hebrew language. And I'm not going to bore you with what the word is. You can look it up yourself. But it's, it doesn't really have a good translation into English. There's no good word that we can use to express this idea because it sums up all of these ideas like goodwill or charity and affection, but also a commitment and a steadfastness and a kindness. For any of you Bible nerds, uh, the word, if you want to 
keep your eyes open when you're reading through the Old Testament, the word is usually translated as loving kindness. It's a love that commits to its object and doesn't back out. It's a love that is faithful to its object and does not abandon the object no matter the cost to itself. This is the love that God loves you with. Last week, Andrew talked about the faithfulness of God and how he is reliable and steady and how he is always near to you. It is because he loves you with a steadfast loving kindness. In the New Testament, the idea of God's love is just as powerful. It appears over and over again in the New Testament when it's talking about how God loves us or how we are to love others. And this, this idea is summed up in the phrase, a love of prizing. A love of prizing. And that sounds really complicated, but really what it is, is it's a love where the motive for that love is not based on the lover, but on the object. Does that still sound complicated? Let me try again. It's a love that looks at its object and says, you are worth loving. It lays eyes upon it and sees a value there, a beauty there that is worth sacrificing for. And so the motivation for love in that relationship isn't based out of the lover, but out of the object, because the object is worthy of that love. It is a selfless love because it's not motivated by the self. It finds its motivation in how much value it finds in the object. Two weeks ago, we talked about the friendship of God and how it was devoid of selfishness. See, God is your friend because to him, you're worth being friends with. God is your friend Because to him, you're worth being friends with. This idea of love is a love that finds beauty within others and values and cherishes that. It delights in the uniqueness of the object. It overcomes obstacles and never tires of pursuing the object. Because to it, the object is worthy of whatever cost. And when we take these two streams of God's faithfulness and his friendship, and we examine, we see that both flow out of the one spring of God's love. His faithfulness is born out of his loving kindness, his steadfast love. And his selflessness is born out of the love of prizing and how much he prizes you. At the root of all this, is one simple statement. The biblical definition of love is that love is unselfishly choosing for the highest good of another. Love is unselfishly choosing for the highest good of another because it is a commitment. It is a choice. You choose to love something because it values the object above itself. You seek For its highest good. See, the love of God is not mere emotion, but He does love you passionately. He will steadfastly seek 
to be by your side and choose for your highest good forever and always. But because he's seeking for your highest good, that doesn't always mean positive feelings. Because sometimes the thing that makes you happy is the very thing that will harm you. And so sometimes, sometimes the Lord puts his finger on something and it hurts, but he does it because he loves you. Because he looks at you and says, you're better than that. Just like you did that morning in the mirror. Ah, Scroggins, you're better than that. Don't you know that the Lord looks at you like that? He sees you as you can be because he sees the value that is there. He sees the beauty that's hidden from all other eyes and the highest good for everyone around you is for you to be everything that the Lord has hoped for you to be. Then as we read through the New Testament and we see this love expressed through Jesus, where he's saying mean things to people that need it because he loves them, and he's encouraging broken people that need it because he loves them too. During the Last Supper, with all of his disciples, he drops this bombshell. In John 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. So that means that this unselfish choice for the highest good of others, is supposed to be the banner that flies over the people of God. How do they know that we love Jesus? Because we selflessly and steadfastly love others. That's it. That's it. It really is that simple. But it's also incredibly difficult. And that's why Jesus says, if you want to be my disciple, you have to pick up your cross and follow me. Because the only way to be selfless is to get rid of yourself, to die to yourself. And then we'll be like Jesus, the most selfless man that ever walked the planet. That's to be the defining and distinctive mark of Jesus on our lives. It's not wearing a t-shirt that lets people know you're Christian. It's not carrying your Bible around in your backpack or posting pictures of a cup of coffee next to your Bible on Instagram or one of those stupid quotes with the mountains behind it. You know what I'm talking about. Those are the worst. Did you know it's not even preaching about Jesus that lets people know? It's how you love one another. It's how you love one another. The way that the world knows that we love Jesus is by how we love those around us. What a high calling. What a high calling. God asks us to love the world around us the way that he loves us.
But God is no fool. God is no fool. He will not tell you to do something that you are incapable of doing. Isn't that good news? Kind of, it's a relief for me. That means that you can do it. That means you can be selfless. You can choose for the highest good of someone besides yourself. And let me tell you, when you begin to love outside of yourself, your world gets so much bigger because you're no longer the only person in the universe. And this is the challenge that we must meet if we are to walk with God. We must love others as he has loved us. In the book of 1 John, he says it this way, whoever says I know him but does not do what he commands is a liar and the truth is not in that person. But if anyone obeys his word, love for God is truly made complete in them. This is how we know we are in him. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there is nothing in them to make them stumble. The band can come back up. This is the litmus test for our faith. Some of you in here would not profess to be Christian, and that's okay. Some of you in here would, and that's great. I think that really is a good thing. But here is our litmus test. Not only for those of us in this room that may not count themselves as a part of the people of God, but also for you in your time of reflection. Do you love others? Do you love others as God has loved you? Are you self sacrificial? And the way that you treat others. Because that's how we know if the love of God is in our hearts. Is we have, if we have the love of God for others. Yeah? And here's the crazy thing. Could you imagine a world? Could you imagine a world where everyone acts as though the other person next to them is more important. Could you imagine a world where we interact with each other as if we were things and beings of eternal significance? Could you imagine what the world would be like if we truly and properly loved one another? I dare say it would be like a fairy tale. And here we are, back with the romantic idea of what love is. Because here's the reality. We were in distress. We were in danger. And then a prince from a far-off land came and rescued us. And then he asked us to help him build a happily ever after with him for the rest of the world. And that is the love of God. Not only 
that he loves us in that way. Not only that he loves us unselfishly and only ever has wanted the best for us, but that he can give you that love for your neighbor. And together, with God, we can work and make their life a happily ever after too. And if that can't get you out of bed in the morning, I don't know what will. So the challenge I leave for you is the same that Jesus left for me. Can you love one another as he has loved you? We're not going to do any prayer time or anything like that because this is another idea of the love of God should change us. When we think about the love of God and what it has done for us, it demands action on our part. So to close tonight, we're just going to stand and worship in response. And then we're going to go out and try and be the people that God dreams of us being. In our dorms, in our apartments, in our classrooms. We're going to try and love our fellow man. Love the people in our small group. Love our roommates that always leave the dirty dishes in the sink the way that God has loved us. That sounds like it was a little too real for some of y'all. Really sorry about that, guys. I gave up that fight long ago. I have five kids. It's just always dirty dishes. But here's, here's the real deal, guys. How will you respond? In light of the way that Jesus has unselfishly chosen for your highest good and always will unselfishly choose for your highest good, will you join him and unselfishly choose for the highest good of your neighbor? Let's pray. Heavenly Father,